All right, let's turn now in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. Verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Um, I, for the most part, am very grateful that my body works cooperatively, that the parts are all fine, that my hands do what they're supposed to do, my legs do what they're supposed to do, and that the body, for the most part, is coordinated and functions smoothly. For instance, when my stomach sends a message to the central nervous system that it's hungry, the brain cooperates and sends messages to all the parts of the body to alleviate and to meet the need. So the message from my brain says to my legs, walk toward the kitchen. And my legs obey. Goes up to the refrigerator, and then the next message to the right hand is, open the refrigerator door. Then to my left hand, take the pie. <laughs> and it works. One of Paul's favorite analogies, as you know, is that the church is a body of Christ. Jesus is the head. He sends out the messages. The Holy Spirit is like the nervous system. Takes the messages, transmits them to the individual members to have it move smoothly, to function beautifully, and in a coordinated kind of an effort. The sad truth, however, it doesn't always work that way. There are, unfortunately, divisions in the body of Christ, factions within the church, where one member rises up to do his or her own thing and causes a split, a faction, a schism in the body of Christ. In fact, you can thank God that your human body does not function like the body of Christ, oftentimes. Imagine if one leg decided to go one direction and one leg decided to go the other direction. Or what if your internal organs decided they wanted more exposure, like the eyes and the mouth and the nose. They wanted to be seen by others. They didn't like this position of being tucked away and unnoticed. They wanted to come out in the open, so to speak. Well, you'd be dead soon because of the infections that that would produce. Now, in these verses, verses 12 through 15, Paul compares the body of Christ, the church, to a family that should also get along with each other. Five times in these verses, from verse 12 to the end of the book, he uses the term adelphoi in some form or another, brethren, brothers. And the idea is simply this, if God in heaven is our Father, then, ipso facto, we are brothers and sisters one of another. We belong to the same family. Now, I've got to tell you the truth, that before I became a Christian, one of the things that kept me from being a Christian was looking at other Christians. I didn't want to be one of them. God was okay. It's just that I looked at Christians through very skeptical eyes. For the most part, I thought they were a bunch of nerds. I didn't like the way they talked. I didn't like the way they dressed. I didn't like what they tried to accomplish. I just didn't want to be one of them. In 1973, the Lord God broke through a very hardened heart, 
got my attention, and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. A wonderful relationship with God developed after that. It was exciting. And then it dawned on me that I have also a large family. All of those nerds that I used to look at through skeptical eyes, I was now one of them. And they were a part of my life. And I needed to learn how to get along with each other. And the rest of this book is a very practical approach. Paul gets very, very practical in our relationships with God and with others. And the underlying fabric of the rest of this section would be seen in verse 13, at the very last part of verse 13, where we read, Be at peace among yourselves. Or I would paraphrase it, learn how to get along with each other. Be at peace among yourselves. If you've been a Christian very long, you found out that it doesn't always work that way. That uh, Christians often don't get along. Now, I don't want to excuse that, but I'd like to explain that. If you're from a large family, that doesn't surprise you. If you've got lots of brothers and sisters you grow up with, you remember that you were good friends, but there were times that you were the worst enemies. That's part of being a sibling. Uh, my son is the only child. It's easy for him. He has to get along with no one else, just him. He's on center stage as a child. There's no siblings. In the body of Christ, because there are so many of us, and we have such varied backgrounds, there are times when getting along isn't always that easy. And we shouldn't be too surprised when factions develop. Dr. Howard Hendricks humorously said that the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. Were it not for the storm on the outside, we couldn't stand the stench sometimes on the inside. We're all together in this boat. And it's not always easy, but the ideal is unity. That's the ideal. As the psalmist said, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And of course, the best example that a church can leave any community, though it's not always easy, is to have an inward peace individually and an internal peace corporately. Or as Paul said to the Roman Christians, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, if it is possible, and I'm glad he threw that in by the inspiration of the Spirit, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, in the section that we're reading this morning, verses 12 through 15, there are three requirements for getting along with each other, as outlined by Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonian Christians. Number one, recognize the leadership. This is how he puts it. And we urge you, or you could translate it, we beg you, brethren, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. You know, historically, the church has wavered between two extremes in its relationship with its leadership. On one hand, the church has elevated to a pedestal position church leaders, almost worshipped them. And that is never God's intention. In fact, in the New Testament book of Revelation, Jesus writes to the Ephesian church and he says, I commend you because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which things I also hate. 
And Nicolaitans was a group that had gotten together. There's a few different explanations, but the word Nicolaitans comes from Nikao, to conquer the laity. And it was the idea of setting up a leadership to such a pedestal position that there was a separation between the people in the congregation and its leadership. And God hates any system that places certain people closer to God than others. That's what the body of Christ is all about. We're members one of another. The second extreme is also wrong, and that is the idea is, yes, we're all the body of Christ, so just forget the leadership. We don't need pastors. We don't need leaders. Let's just do our own thing. It's a very subjective, existential approach. And that's not New Testament either, because Paul told Titus, ordain elders in every city so there'd be leadership. Paul in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesians said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, what prompted Paul to write these verses to the Thessalonians is uncertain. It could be that, number one, they had become disrespectful of church leadership. Or number two, another possibility, the leaders themselves had become heavy-handed and dictatorial in their approach, which provoked this dissension among the church. And so Paul says, you're not to despise them. You're not to worship them. You're simply to recognize them and to esteem them highly in love. Notice why. Because of their age? Because of their degrees? No, because of their activities. It says, for their works sake, because of what they do. In fact, he says, uh, that they labor among you, if you notice in our verses. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That word labor means um, hard labor. It, it speaks actually oftentimes of manual labor. It speaks of toilsome work. You say, well, that's not what I think the ministry is. You know, there's a lot of people, when they think of the ministry, they think, what an easy job. You get, you get to speak one day a week. You have the rest of the days off. If you only knew. Uh, Paul, speaking about the other apostles, and he was included in that group, said, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. There was a survey conducted by two insurance companies that found that uh, most pastors work seven days a week, almost every week, average about nine hours a day, and the average work week is 53.7 hours. Yet to some people that's not enough because another survey was taken by Stanford University, I believe, in Northern California, and they asked different people in congregations around America what they expect the leadership to do. How many hours should a pastor study, preach, visit, administrate? And they tallied up all the expectations, came up to an average. They found that the, the average congregant expects the pastor, the leader, the elder, whatever, to put in 135.5 hours a week. That would leave about 30 left, 30 hours left. And if you spent all of that time just catching up on sleep, you'd have about four hours a night. Of course, you'd have to say goodbye to your family and eating. <laughs> you just have time for sleep. 
Uh, that's why I've always liked the article that was sent to Ann Landers back in 1984, and it was printed in the New Haven Register on May 6th. Uh, the lady said, quote, the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. My time's about up. He condemns sin, but he never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 in the morning until midnight and is also the church janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old and he's been preaching for 25 years. He's wonderfully gentle and handsome, loves to work with teenagers, spends countless hours with senior citizens, makes 15 calls daily on parish families, shut-ins, and hospital patients. He's always in his office when you need him. Now, if your pastor does not measure up to this profile of the perfect pastor, simply send this description to six other churches that are tired of their pastor. Then bundle up your pastor, send him to the church at the top of the list, and in one week you'll receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. So there you have it. What do they do? They labor. How do they labor? Well, notice that it says they are over you in the Lord. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they're better than you. It simply means to superintend, to manage, or to protect. That's what the word means. It speaks of spiritual leadership, spiritual oversight. And a term that Paul uses for elder in the New Testament is presbyteros, presbyteros, which could be translated, or presbyter, overseer, manager, guardian. In the Greek culture, a presbyteros, a presbytery, was put over a city by the emperor. He was to manage the affairs for the kingdom that the emperor was in charge of. And uh, I've given, real quickly, five, in an outline basis, things that I think mark the duties of a spiritual leader, of a pastor. First of all, he should give spiritual guidance to the church. First Timothy chapter 3 says, take care of the church of God. Then secondly, he should preach and he should teach. In Second Timothy, again, Paul says that those elders labor in word and in doctrine. In fact, one of the main things that a pastor does is to study the Word of God so that he might know the Word of God, so that he might adequately teach the Word of God. And so Paul wrote to Timothy and said, an elder should be able to teach or skilled in ministries. That's why a lazy preacher is a hindrance to any church and a disgrace to any pulpit. He should study. I kind of li like to look at it uh, like a wife cooking a meal. Remember the old movies where she comes out and she says, I've been slaving all day over a hot stove preparing this meal. That's what a pastor ought to do. Slave all day during the week over the scriptures, over the language, over the background, over the application so that he can give it to the people in a spiritual kind of a meal. Thirdly, you ought to pray for the church. James said, if anyone is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. That means personally and as well as privately praying for the church. The Word of God and prayer are the two top priorities. As you remember in Acts chapter 6, when the elders were tempted to leave their position of preaching and praying and take care of all of the other things, they said, no, 
We will not leave the Word of God to serve tables. You select people over yourselves who can do that. Go for it. We're going to give ourselves continually to the Word of God and to prayer. A pastor must not give in to the temptation to be carried about with all of the other administrative and all of the other things that can steal time away from prayer and the Word of God. Number four, leadership is to determine church policy in a spiritual sense. Acts chapter 15, there's a dispute. What are we going to do with these Gentile Christians in Antioch? What do we tell them that is required of them? They wrote a letter after a conference and they said, It seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to not lay on you any things other than what we have written to you in this letter. And they give them some general directives, church policy. And fifthly, to ordain others. As Paul wrote to Titus, ordain an elder in every city. Now let's go back to our text. It says, not only are they over you in the Lord, but they admonish you. I want to spend just a, a moment on that word. It's a very strong word. In the Greek, it's nuthateo. It is a very strong confrontational word where you bring to someone's attention wrong that they are doing in their lives to bring correction. It's the very activity that a lot of us don't like either to be involved in or to have it involved in our lives. It's to admonish strongly, to warn and even to rebuke. A.T. Robertson translates it, put sense into them. Put sense in, shake them up a bit. Uh, somebody once said that a pastor has a dual role to comfort the afflicted but also to afflict the comfortable when need be. Titus said, by sound doctrine, exhort and convict those who contradict. Martin Luther was a guy, as you remember from the Reformation, who stood up for the truth and he really didn't care what anybody thought. It cost him his position in the church, it cost him his life really later, but he didn't care. And he said, a preacher must both be a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, defend, teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. Now, if you are a pastor listening to this or you get this tape, please do not over-exaggerate that statement. It doesn't mean you spit up or chew up and spit out. The idea is you speak the truth when you need to admonish, but it's also done in an attitude of love. How should they be treated? Well, notice it says, recognize them and esteem them highly in love. I don't want to elaborate on that too much simply because I feel awkward doing it. But I think the words speak for itself. Know those. The word is to ido, to recognize those who are among you laboring, whether they're ordained or not, full-time, part-time, volunteer, or whatever. And to esteem them highly in love. Don't put them on a pedestal, but esteem them in love for their work's sake. And also, I'll add to that, obey them when they speak the truth and when they live the truth. Hebrews chapter 13, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Why is it that we are to recognize and love and esteem leaders in the church? Well, think about it. Any instrument used by God is certain to be a target of the devil. If God's going to use a certain person, the enemy is going to attack that person. Get the leader to fall. It'll bring others down with him. And so because of that, spiritual leaders are often under attack in a very unique, singular way. There was a uh, survey 
that I was very interested in a couple years back, done by Fuller Seminary in California, given to young and old pastors alike. The results of the survey are as follows. Eighty percent of those in the ministry believe that pastoral ministry has affected their families negatively. Thirty-three percent say being in the ministry is an outright hazard to their family. Seventy-five percent report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. Fifty percent feel unable to meet the needs of the job. Ninety percent feel they were inadequately trained to cope with the demands of the ministry. Forty percent report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. Thirty-seven percent confess to having been involved in inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in their church. And finally, and this is to me is, I think, the most distressing, seventy percent don't have anyone they consider their close friend. Now, I can in some degree understand that because of the uniqueness of the role and the kind of a friend that it takes, but 70%. I've got to be quick to say, Lenny and I are doing okay. After reading those statistics, you go, oh, gee. We're doing great. We're more in love with each other than ever before. Our marriage is awesome. I'm not entertaining other thoughts with anyone else. We're doing great. I thought you ought to know that to give a report after reading those statistics. I thought they would be interesting nonetheless. Secondly, after recognize the leadership, regard the laity. Look at the next couple verses. There's a shift. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Notice three types of individuals are given. And if you look at the description of them, you might call them problem children in a family. Look at their description. Faint-hearted or unruly, faint-hearted and weak. We need to regard those who are among us and give special attention and approach people differently depending on their own temperaments, their own obedience factor. And notice that Paul is urging the whole church to be involved. He's not saying, okay, leaders, you do this. He's saying, do this to one another. Be patient to all. We're to minister one to another. And as you read the list, you might think, I'm not equipped to deal with somebody unruly or somebody faint-hearted or weak. I don't have the necessary equipment spiritually or temperamentally to do it. I disagree. I think you have it. Simply because the Spirit of God lives in each one of you. And God will use you if you let him. To the Romans, Paul said, I myself am convinced, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. You are competent to instruct one another. The only hindrance might be that you're not as conversant in the scriptures as you think you should be, and we can fix that. We've got new believers classes, we have kinships, we have self-confrontation, we have counseling classes, we have a school of ministry, we have pastoral classes. At every level there's training to equip you to minister to one another. Well, let's look at these three types of individuals. First of all, it says, warn the unruly. I look at the unruly as the defiant child spiritually, the defiant Christian. Unruly is a word that was used in the military of the Greeks for a soldier that wouldn't keep rank 
with the other soldiers. He'd get out of step. He'd want to go his own way. He'd want to do his own thing. Later on, it was used by the Greeks of a person who didn't show up to work on time. That's why the NIV translates it idle, but it's not the best translation. Unruly would be the best translation. It speaks of that who is a person who's stubborn or defiant. You know, there are Christians who have an attitude. Children of God with an attitude. They're, they're the defiant ones. They're harder to get through. Question absolutely everything. Stubborn on, on almost any, any account. And they need to be warned, as it says here. Like the little kid who uh, was told to sit down and wouldn't sit down and finally sat down and he said, I might be sitting down on the outside, but uh, I'm standing up on the inside. You know, I'm just defiant. I'm doing what you said, but it's because you, there's a belt attached to your hand and I don't want to feel it. But defiant all the way. Sometimes kids get out of line and they need to be corrected. My parents believed in that. They warned me quite often, but I should say they promised me because they followed through with the warning. They didn't give me an idle threat. Sometimes parents do that. You ever watch that? Don't do that. Son, I said, don't do that. Fifteen times later, they're still saying, don't do that, but they've never followed through with the correct discipline. So the kid knows there's a decibel level that my parents will get to before I really have to stop. Instead of saying, you do that again, I'm going to swat you. Now you know. Uh, there are times that we shouldn't hit Christians. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but I've got to tell you, I've been tempted. Many times. I confess that to you. In the spiritual analogy here, warn the unruly. There are uncomfortable situations that we've all gotten ourselves into where we know that there's a Christian brother or sister walking disorderly. It's a destructive path. They're doing things you know are blatantly wrong. What do you do? Let them go? No. Lovingly, if you have a relationship with them especially, and there is that accountability factor because of friendship and relationship, you owe it to that Christian to say, Brother, that's not right. It's a destructive path, and I, in the name of the Lord, I'm warning you. That walking down that path, as I have observed your own personal life, is devastating. And, well, but the Bible says judge not. That's not what it's talking about. This idea is to warn, to correct behavior, to bring repentance and humility. And the Bible speaks about doing that a lot. So we warn the unruly. Notice the next, the faint-hearted. And it says, comfort the faint-hearted. Uh, this is what I would call the sensitive child in a family. Emotionally, they're up and down. They're like a roller coaster. They're not stable. And we treat them differently. We don't rebuke that kind. That devastate them. We don't warn that kind. We have to be gentle in our comfort and encouragement of that person because it says they are faint-hearted. There's a kid who got in an argument with his parents, stormed into his room, and put a big note on the outside of his door after the argument that said, Dear parents, be nice to your children and love them, and they will be nice to you, signed, God. <laughs> there was no greater authority that child could put on that note than God. <laughs> the word faint-hearted here means small-souled. This is the discouraged Christian who gets discouraged easily, the quitter. It's not good enough, I'm just going to quit. 
They always look at the dark side of things. They're always the pessimists. Remember Eeyore the donkey and uh, Winnie the Pooh? Okay. <laughs> you know the kind. They get swallowed up either by their own failures, they see their own sinfulness, or the circumstances of life are just enveloping them and they're surrounded by them and they want to give up. Unfortunately, some people, even Christians, in this area get tempted to take their own life. Why do they do this? Why, why do they act like this? I think a lot of Christians are selective listeners. They hear the negative, they hear one side of the story, they don't listen to the whole communication, and they focus on the bad. So we need to gently comfort them. The word here means to console, calm, and encourage. Help them along. Somebody noted that for every negative comment that we give people, they need five or six good comments to offset the discouragement that comes from the negative. There are some people in the church like that. They need comfort. Finally, it says uphold the weak. I call this the feeble child in the family. It needs to be held up by others. It's the young Christian who's just learning how to walk, walks and stumbles. And we put our kids now who are learning how to walk in a walker. We're holding them up. The word means put your arm around them. Don't let them fall. Give them stability lest they fall. Cleave to them. Some people in the church need this almost constantly for a period of time. But many of you who are weak in the church like this, unfortunately, are afraid to admit it. Because somewhere along the line, we have communicated to you the wrong message. And that is, if you're a Christian, you ought always to paint that dorky smile on your face and say, praise the Lord, no matter what. And that's wrong. I've had people say to me when I've been uh, caught off guard and I'm not smiling, they go, what's wrong? You should be smiling. I feel like saying, oh, be quiet. But I don't. There are some Christians who need to know it's okay to admit their weakness. But they think, no, 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 Christians are supposed to have it all together. No, Christians are to have it so together that they allow for weakness and for failure. And that's where we come and we uphold those who are weak. And then a summary statement is given with all three of these. Be patient with all. The word patient is a comprehensive term. It, it's a special word that speaks about putting up with problem people. The weak, the faint-hearted. The unruly takes a lot of patience. It's where you refuse to act, you sit on something, you think about something, you endure with the weakness of another person. So respect leadership, regard the laity, and then finally, a third requisite of getting along is refuse to lash out. Look at verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Now, this is the context of relationships. In the church, when you deal with unruly, weak, and faint-hearted people, somebody's going to get hurt. And what do you feel like doing when you get hurt? Either run away or get even. And getting even is so much more fun than just running away. And revenge, unfortunately, is very easy to come by in our human nature. It's very easy to retaliate instead of to repay good for evil. A mother was summoned to the bedroom of her five-year-old son named Jack when she heard him screaming at the top of his lungs. 
She went in the room and saw that little two-year-old daughter grabbing a hold of Jack's hair, pulling all of her might. She quickly rushed and gently tugged those hands away. And, you know, Jack was screaming in pain and seething. And, and Mom said, now, Jack, she's only two years old. She didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know that that hurt. She didn't know that that hurt you. Just don't worry about it. She left the room. As soon as she stepped out the door, she heard the daughter screaming. She rushed back in, looked at Jack, and Jack said, now she knows. <laughs> it's as easy as breathing to revenge. Unfortunately, some in the church are good at that. Some in the church are good at verbal ping-pong, gossip, backstabbing, those kinds of things that ruin relationships. We're to return good for evil. A soft answer turns away wrath. Romans chapter 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath Listen to this. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's such a great verse. You don't have to worry about the person who's wronged you. Let God handle them. God can deal with them a lot better than you can. Lord, they hurt me. They're yours, Lord. Do whatever you think is needed, but I just am withdrawing myself. Well, if you want to discipline them, go for it. Please go for it, Lord. <laughs> but I'm stepping out. Vengeance is yours, not mine. Um, it's a privilege to be a part of this fellowship. It's a privilege to watch us all grow in the Lord together and through the good and the bad and the easy and the difficult to still go ahead, to work through it, not to run, not to revenge, but to work through it. Respect the leadership, regard the laity, refuse to lash out. Somebody wrote a little humorous article called, Do You Know How Many Tates Are In Your Church? You have a Tate family. Every church has a group of Tates. He says, there's old man Dick Tate who wants to run everything, while Uncle Roe Tate tries to change everything. And then there's their sister, Adji Tate. She stirs up plenty of trouble with help from her husband, Erie Tate. Whenever new projects are suggested, Old Hezzy Tate and his wife, Veggie Tate, uh, want to wait till next year. Then there's Aunt Emmy Tate, who wants our church to be like all the others she's gone to. Mr. Devis, yeah, Devis Tate, provides the voice of doom while potent Tate wants to be a big shot. And of course, there's always the black sheep of the family, Ampu Tate who has completely cut himself off from the church. Hey, let's determine to be different. Let's determine to be involved in each other's lives, to not be involved in any of that nonsense, but let's meditate on the scriptures and activate our love for each other.